2: From Utah's Capitol Hill to your schools, taxes, and all the breaking news, hear it on Live Mike with Lee Sperry on KSL News Radio. Welcome back to Live Mike. I want to talk to you about the Twenty Fifth Amendment. No, I, I know at the beginning of the show I told you it was going to be fun. We're going to have a good, fun Friday show, and uh, we spent the last half hour talking about statistics and causation and correlation. Uh, well, listen. It's important. It's interesting. And the 25th Amendment today, I'm going to tell you uh, why Uh, it's a a fascinating topic to be uh, discussing today, particularly after an announcement from Nancy Pelosi just yesterday. A a quick uh, three-second little comment by Speaker Pelosi uh, brought the Fifth Amendment to the top of my mind.
0: Come here tomorrow. We're going to be talking about the 25th Amendment.
2: That was yesterday, and today uh, she made good on her word and introduced a piece of legislation alongside Maryland Congressman Jamie Raskin announcing uh, that they would be taking a power afforded the Congress within the 25th Amendment and uh, putting together a a certain commission. I'll let the members of Congress explain that uh, for themselves, but uh, let's go backwards a little bit. The 25th Amendment. It is, it's one of the newer amendments to the Constitution. It wasn't adopted until February of 1967. Now, uh, pop quiz for you. There are two newer amendments. Uh, Two amendments uh, have been added to the Constitution since 1967 uh, and the 25th. So, what do the, what do the, can you tell me, what do the 26th and 27th Amendments uh, address five seven five zero zero. That's the Utah Community Credit Union text line. Uh, I, uh, I'll give you. I'll give you a moment. The twenty sixth. What does it deal with? And the twenty seventh. Uh, and even more interestingly, the story as to how the twenty seventh amendment uh, became ratified and added to the Constitution. I'll tell you this much: the twenty seventh amendment was one of the very first amendments proposed. Yeah, way back uh, in the seventeen hundreds holds the record for uh, the longest span of time between uh, proposal and ratification, 203 years. All right, you give up. The 26th Amendment deals with lowering the voting age to 18, or more specifically, preventing states from uh, having an age limit on voting rights any higher than 18. And then the 27th Amendment, here's what the 27th Amendment does. It prohibits Congress from raising its own pay. And after the commercial break, I'm going to tell you the story about how it came about. It's absolutely fascinating. But here, uh, let's get to what we have learned today. The 25th Amendment, well, why is it relevant? Uh, it has to do with uh, issues relating to presidential succession and disability. It clarifies that the vice president becomes president if the president should pass away, resign, or is removed from office. Today, Speaker Pelosi appeared before cameras and spent about 25 minutes alongside Jamie Raskin as they announced the introduction of a piece of legislation. Uh, interestingly, it's not as straightforward as you might think. And to hear Speaker Pelosi explain things, uh, she says that it has nothing to do with today.
0: This is not about President Trump. He will face the judgment of the voters. But he he shows the need for us to create a process for future presidents.
2: Let's start with Speaker Pelosi's understanding of the 25th Amendment. She sees it as something of a roadmap.
0: The 25th Amendment creates a path for preserving stability if a president suffers a crippling physical or mental problem and is, unquote, in the amendment, unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office.
2: The 25th Amendment is broken up into four parts. Section 1 is, in the case of the removal of the president from office or of his death or resignation, the vice president shall become president. That needed some uh, clarification, and uh, it used to be worded in a sort of ambiguous sense. Uh, Is the vice president now the acting president or what? Uh, This clarifies. Section 1, if the president goes away, the vice president becomes the president. Section 2 Whenever there is a vacancy in the office of the vice president, the president then shall nominate a vice president who shall take office upon confirmation by a majority vote of both Houses of Congress. Section 3, uh, whenever the President, this is how, how it's written, whenever the President transmits to the President pro tem of the Senate and the Speaker of the House of Representatives his written declaration that he is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, and until he transmits to them a written declaration to the contrary, such powers and duties shall be discharged by the Vice President as acting president so that when does that come into play uh, that is you know if, if a president needs to go under the knife for a procedure where uh, anesthesia is involved or uh, some or other scenario in which they are still living uh, but will temporarily be incapacitated uh, a, a letter or some form of communication is handed over to the president uh, pro tem of the Senate and the Speaker of the House and it is under that circumstance then that the vice president will serve as the acting president president until, you know, a subsequent letter is handed over. Now, the fourth section, it's the longest section of the amendment and deals with an incapacitated president who is unable or unwilling to transfer power to the vice president. So you look at number three, if for some reason the president is unable to fulfill his duties yet fails to send that letter to the president pro tem of the Senate. Or the Speaker of the House, Section 4, handles that. Section 4 outlines the process through which power is transferred in the circumstances. But regarding the role of Congress, it's not exactly explicit. It is within those nebulous words that Speaker Pelosi and Representative Raskin are taking action today.
0: Section 4 of the amendment empowers Congress to set up an independent body uh, to confront such a crisis. Congress has a constitutional duty to lay out the process by which a president's incapacity and the president of any party is determined.
2: Here's Representative Raskin explaining his understanding of Section 4.
1: Section 4 deals with the problem of a president who becomes incapacitated but has made no provision to temporarily transfer powers, meaning, in the words of Senator Birch Bayh, That the president is unable either to make or to communicate his decisions as to his own competency to execute the powers and duties of his office. In that case, the vice president and a majority of the cabinet or the vice president and such other body that may be established by Congress may determine that there is a presidential incapacity.
2: Do you get that? So there is a scenario in which a majority of the cabinet members may express a, uh, a desire to have the vice president step in as acting president. That can be done. That's explicit right now. So if a majority of the president's cabinet uh, teams up with the vice president uh, and those two groups agree that, yeah, you know, the vice president ought to step in, it also, the fourth section here allows for Congress to form a a commission. That's at least the belief of Representative Raskin and Speaker Pelosi. And so that is what this piece of legislation does. It creates a group uh, comprised of some doctors, some former presidents, uh, members of Congress themselves, uh, and would then uh, be Congress's representation to potentially team up with the vice president to step in. Now, why is this happening? Why has Speaker Pelosi chosen to do this? Why has she teamed up with Representative Raskin to introduce legislation of this sort? Number one, there's no way it makes it through Congress, right? There's no way uh, that the Senate even takes this up and even less of a chance that the president would sign it. Well, I, I have a theory, and I believe it comes down to power. You see, when Speaker Pelosi was making this announcement today, speaking to the media, she was wearing a pin that she wears on occasion, not always, only on certain occasions does she wear this pin. And it's a very interesting pin because it is a depiction of the mace. The the mace is the physical symbol of power in the House. And it is typically positioned right alongside the Speaker's uh, the speaker's chair on the dais there in the House of Representatives. It's used, uh, quite literally, if Congress should become out of order to the degree that order must be physically restored, the Sergeant-at-Arms can be instructed to take the mace and use it to either wield a threat in front of a member of Congress or physically bludgeon them into compliance. <laughs> it's no joke. And so what I saw today was Speaker Pelosi exerting her power, letting not only President Trump know, uh, but also candidate Biden know that in the next Congress, should there be any question of their uh, ability to to carry out the duties of president, should their health uh, complicate that ability, that Congress will be standing ready or that she intends rather to take advantage of any angle she can find in those obscure sections of the Constitution to wield her power. It's a fascinating play. Uh, it's a fascinating move. It won't go anywhere, but it sends a very strong message. Quick break, and I'm going to tell you the fascinating story of the 27th Amendment to the Constitution next on Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry, and this is KSL News Radio. KSL's Live Mike. Live Mike with Lee Lonsberry. Welcome back to Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry. You know, I worked in D.C. for a while. I uh, either brag about that or lament it uh, all the time, uh, and you're tired of hearing about it. But uh, one thing it did was it instilled in me uh, a a desire to understand the the Constitution more, and specifically the process through which proposed amendments go to uh, become ratified and a piece of the U.S. Constitution, the supreme law of the land. You heard. In the last segment, we spent some time looking at a Speaker Pelosi proposal along with Representative Raskin, which would create uh, essentially a, a commission which Congress would control, to, which would be empowered to team up with the vice president and uh, essentially uh, take over the presidency. Should that commission uh, determine the president to be sufficiently incapacitated and be able to make that argument to the vice president, uh, well, then the vice president, uh, him or herself, would assume the role of acting president. An interesting thing, it's not going to go anywhere, I I, I predict, uh, but as you heard me describe, it's an interesting exertion of power. Uh, on the part of the the speaker, and so uh, we'll, we'll see what comes of that. Uh, my prediction is nothing, but it will certainly start a uh, a conversation, uh, at least a messaging conversation, if nothing else. As I was combing through some of the historic details of the twenty fifth amendment, I was reminded of an interesting story I learned a number of years ago about the twenty seventh amendment. Now, again, pop quiz: Does anyone know? Do you know what the twenty seventh amendment does? The the 27th Amendment essentially uh, restricts or limits members of Congress for giving themselves uh, a pay raise. Here's how it works. Uh, Congress obviously can vote for an increase in compensation, but uh, the 27th Amendment makes it so that increase in compensation doesn't take effect until the subsequent Congress. So each member of Congress would have to, uh, they would have to look forward uh, and potentially give, uh, you know, a raise to congressmen down the road, and then the voters would decide: uh, Do does my congressman or woman do they deserve uh, the the raise that they voted for themselves? Now this hasn't happened uh, since two thousand nine. Congressional salaries have remained uh, stagnant since 2009. I believe right now they're at 174000 for uh, most of your members of Congress, both the House and Senate. I know that uh, certain leadership roles give uh, a little bit more compensation there, but for your rank-and-file uh, member of Congress, they're bringing home about $174,000 annually. That's been the case since 2009. All right, so how? why, why is the backstory there interesting? Well, you see, it was ratified in 1992. That's the most recent ratified amendment to the Constitution. Ratified in 1992, it was proposed in 1789. The 27th Amendment, or what became the 27th Amendment, was a concept proposed in 1789 along with 11 other suggested amendments. So twelve suggestions in 1789, ten of which would become uh, the Bill of Rights. Ten of those initial twelve suggestions uh, would become the Bill of Rights, and a limitation on uh, the congressional increase of their own salary uh, didn't make it. So how how is it that an amendment proposed in 1789 was able to be ratified 203 years later? Well, the the answer comes from a college freshman named Gregory Watson.
1: I'm Gregory Watson. I'm responsible for the ratification of the 27th Amendment to the federal constitution.
2: Now, as an older man, uh, Mr. Watson, he granted an interview to The Daily Show not too long ago and told a story.
1: It all started in 1982 with a college paper that I wrote. I found a book. In the library that showed amendments that Congress had approved but which not enough state legislatures had ratified. And I found this one from 1789. So in
2: 1982, this man here, Gregory Watson, he was then a 19 year old freshman studying at the University of Texas. He was enrolled in a government class where He was assigned a paper uh, about the governmental process. He was kind of a constitutional nerd, a a much more effective constitutional nerd than am I. Uh, He decided for his paper that he would look at the the 27th Amendment, or rather the proposed 27th Amendment, which dated back to 1789.
1: I turn it in to the TA Mm -hmm. and get it back a few days later with a C on it. With a C? A C. And I appealed the grade up to the professor. She said she'd take a look at it. And when she came back a few days later, she saw me sitting in the aisle, and she physically tossed it at me and said, no change. I decided right then and there, I'm going to get that amendment ratified.
2: So he went about trying to track down anyone who could possibly bring this about. Your first thought is, all right, members of Congress, members of state legislatures. So he started uh, a a letter-writing campaign, and it was slow going at first. Uh, He he describes uh, he had much trouble, and then Maine. He got that letter into the hands of just the right person who set off a series of dominoes tumbling over. Ultimately, uh, that this notion, this idea of ratifying this amendment made it to the legislature in Maine, the state legislature, which in fact ratified it. That was the first success, the first uh, state you know, since the early days, to have, since the 1700s, to ratify this amendment. But after the success in Maine, Watson, he's emboldened, and he went on a letter-writing tear. He sent letters to anyone he thought might be able to help his cause.
1: Then I start writing those letters, yeah. pleading with members of the legislatures in those states to introduce a resolution at the state capitol to ratify the amendment. And it needed 32 states. And when Maine ratified the following year in 1983, there was just no
2: turning back. It's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. Now, what he had done was he looked at, now this is going back to his freshman class back in 1982, he looked at the various proposed Amendments to the the Constitution, many of them, uh, for example, the Equal Rights Amendment, they have uh, essentially a, a sunset. It gives states a certain amount of time to ratify that amendment and have it amend the the constitution and for For most proposed amendments that haven 't become you know actual changes to the constitution uh, that that sunset has has expired or that timeline available. Uh, has expired. And yet there are still some out there, uh, as observed by this Mr. Watson, that don't have uh, expiration dates, and that the statutorial path to ratification is still clear. So who knows? Maybe, maybe you or uh, your young student will go and sift through the the history books and find some proposed amendment. There are thousands of them. Proposed amendment to the Constitution. Find out that oh, look at this one here. Look at this one here. There's no uh, there's no deadline for that one. Uh, let's revive it. Who knows? Maybe you can pull it off. Uh, I'd be interested uh, to see that. We're going to take a break right now. When we return, we're going to talk about tax returns, specifically about the transparency of tax returns. No, not not the President of the United States, but yours. Yeah, yours. Are there any circumstances under which you, private citizen listener, would allow the world to see your tax return? And would you be curious to see your neighbors? Jay Evenson of the Deseret News has a column arguing that, hey, maybe we ought to give it a shot. We'll speak to him next on Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry, and this is KSL News Radio.